please pray with me. Father God, we come before you and we really do believe that you're our healer and that you're all that we need. We know that we need you. We need your guidance in every area of our lives. So Father, we invite you to speak to us today. Father, I ask that no matter what I say, that your message become clear, that our hearts and our spirits would hear your word and that you would give us the courage and conviction by the power of your spirit to live out whatever you convict our hearts of today. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, and the way that you have met us already this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you know, last week was Vacation Bible School. And for those of us who were involved, we're still living out, you know, some of the aftershocks of having 120 kids running around, especially, I'm sure, some of our teens. I always tell them, Vacation Bible School is going to be awesome. And it is. Vacation Bible School is, like, the best thing ever. We love doing Vacation Bible School. But my sister this week sent me a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, it's usually a picture or a video, a cultural icon, something humorous. And I thought it was one of the funniest things that I'd ever seen. I couldn't get it in motion, but hopefully the picture will be able to let you understand it. This is Captain Jack Sparrow. He's running away from a bunch of savages that want to destroy him. And they're like, be a VBS leader, they said. It'll be fun, they said. And it is fun, but there are moments where it feels like this. And because I saw this, I ended up looking at a few other memes that kind of connected with some of the stuff that we did this week. For example, the teens and I took our annual trip to Six Flags Magic Mountain. And I love Six Flags Magic Mountain, but for the past couple years, I haven't really been able to get on rides because there's things going on. But somehow, I ended up in line with the Mishki boys, who are awesome ride buddies, um, with, for the ride, The Drop of Doom. Now, I thought it was a good idea until I got to the top and this scary voice started telling us how high up we are and how this might be our last experience. And Luca screamed out, three, two, one. And I like clenched up and I thought we were going to fall and we didn't. Just as I relaxed, the whole thing dropped. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and I'm with a bunch of boys and no one's screaming but me. <laughs> it's just me, like all the way down, screaming, screaming. I thought I broke myself because I was screaming so loud. And then I saw this meme and I thought it was hilarious because it's so true. I was totally the guy whose face is like going back because I thought it was going to be so fun, and it was, but there were moments like this too. It's funny how you have an idea of how stuff is going to go, right? Whether it's vacation Bible school or a recipe you're going to make or a cool craft you saw on Pinterest and then you're using a hot glue gun and you have no more fingerprints left. You have this idea of how things are going to go, and it doesn't always go according to plan. I found a picture this week that was a real throwback to me and that I really enjoyed. My former youth pastor posted this picture. So that girl in the middle looks like she's doing sit-ups. That, that was me at 13 years old. And what happened was it was my very first youth group, and we were at Riverside Community Church, and there were only seven of us, and four of us were new. <laughs> and so we, we talked to one another and our youth pastor, and we're like, you know what, we need to start a youth group. And so we got together, we had a meeting of the minds, and our youth pastor said, well, what do you want to do? And we said, well, we got to get some more people here, but, you know, there's no academy, and academy's a luxury. There's no academy in the area. And so we said, well, all the teens in the vicinity of our church are from low-income homes, and they are primarily uh, gang-infested, so gang-infested neighborhood. But we thought to ourselves, well, like, people need Jesus, right? So we had to come up with a way to try to reach these people. And our brainchild, which we thought was so brilliant at the time, but now is kind of ridiculous, was a program called Street Wave, kind of like Heat Wave, because it's summertime, but it's called Street Wave. 
And what we did was we went out, and it was really hot, and we, were, um, we knelt down on the asphalt, and we drew these chalk drawing invitations telling people what time to be out, what was going to be happening. And then we would go every afternoon for a week, and uh, what we would write in the invitation is when you hear the music come out of the house. And we would get this big truck with this big speaker, and we would start blasting Christian music, and we would all line up, all seven of us, behind the truck, and we would have a parade. <laughs> and we were wearing ridiculous hats and ridiculous outfits and we'd play the music but the kids would come out and they would they we would rope off a little area and we would play a bunch of games and then we'd do a bible story and what I'm doing is I don't remember the exact story but I was someone who died that Jesus who is the guy holding the broomstick that he brought back to life and we would share bible stories that way and I remember it being an amazing summer uh, because a lot of the teens that we met uh, had experienced enormous life change they left gangs they some some of them had to move out of the area in order to escape everything that they were going through and it was amazing to be 13 years old and get to be part of something like that and I remember in my heart thinking like this is amazing I loved it when I went on mission trips and I got to give bible studies even if I was just translating them from um, English into Tagalog and it was amazing every time I could see someone accept accept Christ for the first time. And I remember thinking to myself that I was so grateful that I had a youth pastor that believed that we could do stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what, teens can do anything as long as they have someone who believes in them. And so three years ago, it's going to be three years, I think, in a week, when I came here to Benita, I thought to myself, it's going to be just like that, but all the time. It's going to be like the high and amazing all the time. But it doesn't take that long for our ideas of how we think. Things are going to go to kind of go away really quickly, right? And it's funny. I came here and had a lot of love to give, and it's going to be super awesome, but it takes time. It takes time to develop relationships. It takes time to develop trust. And that moment when you walk into the youth room, and someone's trying to light a beanbag on fire, and you're looking at them like, why would you do that? I just bought that beanbag, and all kinds of other craziness and things that go on. Not to mention the reality that if you're going to love people, your heart can get hurt, that no matter how much and how sincere you are, you can be rejected. And that's just not by teens, that's just by everybody in general. And you have this idea that, you know, when we start doing things for God, it's going to be amazing. And you know what? It has been amazing, but in a different way than I would have expected. Uh, these last few weeks here at church, we have been talking about children's ministry, about kids and their enormous value to God. And when Pastor Milton and I talked about me talking about youth ministry today, I thought to myself, what am I going to say? They don't even talk about teenagers in the Bible. That's the one part of Jesus' life they completely skipped over. So what am I supposed to say about that? And in addition to that, being a teenager and adolescence is a pretty recent development. That wasn't something that people had all the time. In the early 1900s, the word adolescent came up, which means to grow up. And somehow when the word was created and our world changed and things like high schools and being required to go to high school and hang out with teenagers and not entering the workforce immediately, this group called teenagers, adolescents, was created. Whereas previously in the world, they didn't have that. You were either a kid or you were an adult. You were a kid till you had some kind of ritual or ceremony, and then you were an adult. There was none of this like in-between, kind of a kid, kind of an adult, figuring it out stage, which now a lot of researchers say extend all the way to, in some cases, 30 years old. That this extended adolescence period extends for quite a while. And so I thought to myself, what am I going to preach on from that in scripture? I could think of a few things. But then I had the opportunity to talk to a very trusted mentor. 
and she reminded me of a very small figure in scripture named John Mark. John Mark. You think about it, you're like, well, I know John, I know Mark, but who's John Mark? And I realized that everything that our teens struggle with today, which is a lot of things, this is a completely different world than what their parents and what other generations grew up with, that the things that they struggle with is something that this young man in scripture, in scripture, thousands of years ago, stuff that he experienced. And if you look at how teachers and leaders at the time responded to him and what happened, there are actually things that we can learn about our teens and about how to respond to our teens and to our kids, anyone in general who was born after the year 1984. Wise ways, godly ways to respond to them that will make a difference. Because you see, today's teens, according to Dr. T Tim Elmore, who wrote the book IY Generation, which with the most recent research, um, particularly faith-based with teens, he says that today's teens are going through a lot, that they're overwhelmed, that an alarming number of them are on, are on medication, either for depression or anxiety and all kinds of things, more than ever in the world, that they're overconnected, they're constantly in communication with one another, but at the same time isolated, because it's communication that goes through devices and there are emotional muscles that are never developed, that they're isolated from society, that over 50% of their time is spent in the influence of one another, not with an adult, that perhaps there are adults present, teachers present, parents present in the home, but they derive their main identity from one another. And because of all of these factors, there's a diminishing contribution to society. They start work later, they keep jobs shorter, and diminishing commitment to faith, that if you you survey the majority of our, even, even in our Adventist churches, that a lot of our teens know about God, but they don't live a faith-filled life every day. And I don't know about you, but that's not okay with me. I'm not okay with that. But what is the missing piece? What do we do? And I'm so grateful that scripture has something to say about this. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to be tracking John Mark's progress through scripture. And since he's not really a main character, he's kind of just mentioned here, mentioned there. Oh, Colossians, Philemon. He's kind of pops up everywhere. We're going to see what we can learn about John Mark just through um, the little mentions that that uh, scripture talks about. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And this is what it reads. When this had dawned on him, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So we can't get into the entire story because we're trying to follow John Mark around scripture right now. But what we can learn about John Mark from here is that his, uh, his mother Mary uh, owned, um, owned a house that was really large, large enough to fit uh, a lot of believers. And so what we know is that he was raised in a somewhat wealthy family. You don't just have huge houses back in Bible times unless you had a lot of money. So he came from a, a somewhat wealthy family. He had some affluence. And on top of that, he came from a Christian home. So a privileged Christian home. And he was exposed to a lot of teaching. Christianity was pretty new at the time, but since everyone was always coming over to basically have church at his house, maybe he was one of the first pastor's kids, it was something that he was privileged to experience that he was able to hear all of these teachers and all of the great information, just like much many of our teens have been able to experience either here, at home, at the academy. He knew everything that he needed to know. And then he's not mentioned again for another several verses. And what we discover is that Barnabas and Saul, they go on a mission trip and they come back and they're ready to go out again and they decide to take with them John Mark. And this is a big deal. 
the mission trips then weren't just something that, you know, you just decide to go on and then you come back. You risked your life. You were going to places where nobody had heard about Jesus, and if they had, they were probably antagonistic to the message. You're putting your life on the line. And in response to that, sometimes the apostles and missionaries got a lot of glory and credibility in the Christian community. And so we have John Mark, who's probably around the age of a teenager, and he has the opportunity to go into the mission field. He's going to go with Barnabas, and it's a really exciting moment for him. But then we discover that Barnabas and Paul decide to go to a place called Cyprus. And see, here in Cyprus, this is Barnabas, who is John Mark's cousin. That's his hometown. That's the place where John Mark would have known a lot of people. He would have been really comfortable. Ministry wouldn't have been too difficult. It would have been pretty easy. And they were supposed to make several stops on the way. But then we discover that somewhere along the way, actually, he didn't even make it to his second stop. He goes about a mile into Asia Minor, and he turns around, and he goes home which is unacceptable. That is not an okay thing to do when you go out to preach the message. Scripture says that he was chosen by the Holy Spirit. He had a calling on his life, and he turned around, and he ditched his buddies, and he went home. He was just an assistant. And you know, the thing that's so interesting about that to me is that that's actually one of the big defining characteristics of my generation, is a lack of an ability to stick to stuff. That the moment stuff gets hard because my generation has been overprotected and coddled and handed everything, many of us, that because of that, when things get hard, we just turn around and walk away. And that's why, for those of us in Generation Y, those of us born after 1984, the average amount of time that we keep a job is about two years because it gets difficult or it doesn't go fast enough and it's not easy enough and we just decide to turn and go and do something else, so a very short amount of commitment. And so we know that Paul and Barnabas, they go about doing their thing and they go and they, um, they do ministry and they evangelize and then several chapters later, something interesting happens. Sometime later, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So here is one of the first little conflicts in ministry that we see. John Mark deserted them, and Barnabas, Mark's cousin, says, hey, you know, let's give him another chance. Let's take him with us. And Paul says, no, that kid ditched us. I'm not going to give him another chance. I don't see usefulness to myself in ministry. He let me down. He doesn't deserve to come with us. What would you do? It's actually a challenging situation because you can kind of find merit in both paths. And because you can kind of find merit in both paths, Scripture says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know what I love about this is that even our heroes of the faith, they had some conflicts too. And what's so great about this is that instead of this being something that stopped the ministry, instead of God getting two missionaries, he got four. Instead of going to one place, they got to go to all kinds of places because that's just how God works. Even in the midst of our conflicts, he can do great things. He can turn evil into good. But they had this huge disagreement. They can't agree what to do. And so they decide to go separate ways. 
ways. What would you do? What kind of person are you like? Which side do you lean more towards? I think it might be a more of a personality thing with me, but I have a tendency to be like, well, you know, you had a chance and you messed it up, so good luck, you know? Like, you just have to wait for another chance. And I will say, I learned really quickly in youth ministry, it doesn't work that way. You can't communicate that you believe in someone if the first time that they mess up, you decide that you're just going to walk away from them. And Pastor Milton and I have had amazing conversations about that. I've so appreciated his, his insight and input into that situation. But we see that there's Paul and there's Barnabas. And so they split. And it's interesting because in, uh, in Dr. Tim Elmore's book, IY Generation, he talks about some qualities of teens and young adults in this generation. And I think that John Mark relates to a lot of them. What he says is that teens and young adults in our generation feel special and needed, but the con of that is that they can act spoiled and conceited. John Mark was probably a pretty special guy, like everyone met at his mom's house, but is it possible that maybe he had some spoiledness and conceitedness that came out of that? Another pro is that they love community, but they won't act outside their clique. We see that because John Mark is unwilling to go outside of the town where all of his relatives are. He doesn't want to go minister to the Gentiles. Maybe they had some kind of disagreement or conflict or it was just scary. A pro is that they're the focus of their parents. This is the most intensely parented generation ever. But the con of that is they may be unable to cope with reality. Instead of helicopter parents, there are, what is it, snowblower, bulldozer parents that kind of take down all the obstacles in their kid's path and say, you know what, it's okay. Like, let me take it all down for you. You can walk through it. And so they never learn how to deal with adversity and challenges. A pro is that they've had relatively easy lives, but a con is that they may lack stamina to finish a task. And because this is such an age of convenience for all of us, where everything is quick, then we have learned that slow is bad. And that's a big challenge, a lack of ability to wait. A pro is that they hunger to change the world, just like John Mark wanted to go out there. He wanted to make disciples, be a missionary, but they anticipate doing it quickly and easily, and that's never how it works. Lasting change, good change, nothing comes quickly and easily if it's something worthwhile. And so you see all of this happening in John Mark's life, and you see Paul, an apostle, say, no, no more, I'm not going to deal with that. And then you see Barnabas, and he does something different. And what is the result of that? It's really interesting because about five years later, this is what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So that's just like the next little mention of John Mark. But what we see is that somehow Paul has kind of warmed up to John Mark. He's not as mad at him that he's about to split up with his teammate in order to ditch John Mark. He says, well, if Mark comes around, you know about him, welcome him. And then about 12 years later, this is what um, he writes to Timothy. Get Mark, this is John Mark, and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So what happened? How did it go from, oh, like so annoying, not worth the time, to, yeah, bring him with you. I'm in prison about to be killed, and I want John Mark with me. What made the difference? And as I look at the story, the only thing that I can see is that the one who made the difference is Barnabas, is the one who said, I am unwilling to judge this young person 
by the mistake that they have made. I am unwilling to determine their worth and value by a mistake that they have made. I can see that God has called him and God has something good and I'm willing to take him with me. I'm willing to go to battle. I'm willing to take some heat in order to take this young man with me and show him by my life how to follow God. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and John Mark's life, it wasn't quick, probably wasn't easy, but his life was changed. You see, it's really interesting when we talk about this generation, usually it's all just completely negative and really bad and, oh, like, why don't they be better? But what Dr. Tim Elmore points out is that someone created this generation, that this generation is a result of choices. And that if it's gonna change, it's also going to have to be a result of choices. And the thing that we also miss at times is that we have an enemy. We have an enemy that is really happy when our young people are distracted and put off purpose and rejected and when there is disunity in the church as a result of them. We have an enemy that is very happy about that. Why? Because as Lisa Bevere says in her book, Girls with Swords, the attacks on your life have much more to do with who you might become in the future than who you have been in the past. That many times our enemy is able to discern who we are and what we might become before even we do, before we're able to discern it about each other. And so what better thing to do than to get them when they're young, to distract them. We have an enemy that wants to destroy their souls. We have an enemy that wants to steal them away to purposeless lives and to lives without meaning and to distract them from what God has for them because he knows what they could become. You know what John Mark became? He became the author of the Gospel of Mark. The very first gospel, it wasn't Matthew, it wasn't the first one written. The very first gospel written about Jesus, he wrote that. Why? Because Barnabas believed in him. Because Barnabas said, let me give you a second chance, let me take you into my life and show you by the way I live my life that something can be different. You see, we are reminded in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, to be alert and of sober mind, that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And how do lions devour something? In the wild, as you watch them in National Geographic, they wait, they go for the young ones, the ones with not too much experience that are vulnerable, and they isolate them, and then they go for the kill. And that is what our enemy, a prowling lion, is trying to do with your children. Even if your kids aren't teenagers, or maybe if your kids are already grown, all the young generation in your life, he's trying to destroy their ability to live for the kingdom of God. And you know who God has set as the first line of defense? Parents. It's really interesting because you'll encounter this in ministry, no matter where you go, right, Pastor Milton? That there's kind of a hope that if they come to church once or twice a week, that somehow that can overturn everything that happens at home. But that's not true. Parents, family members, you guys are the first youth workers. You have 100% more influence in your kid's life than anyone else. There is nothing that can be done in this building to overturn stuff that they're seeing at home. It cannot be undone by a couple of hours here. God has put family as the first line of defense against the enemy. And then next, he puts us. It's not just supposed to be a nice thing when we say we're a church family. That's not just supposed to make us feel warm and feel like we're friendly and nice people. 
You know, family's supposed to stick together. Family is family even when stuff goes wrong. Family is committed to one another. That's the relationship that God invites us into with one another. And yet it has become so easy, Dr. Elmore writes in his book, for generations to step back and say like, oh, these crazy kids, it's their fault. They're not worth my time. I don't know what to do about it. But you see, even in the wild at times, we can find examples of what God is actually asking us to do when our young ones are targeted and there's no one to defend them. I'd like to invite you to turn your attentions to the screen really quickly. We're going to watch two minutes of National Geographic. You know, it's a little eerie to me how well this little snapshot uh, indicates what's happening in our culture about how often and how much it happens that even families, good families that care, they kind of just give up and they say, I don't know what to do. You're on your own. Like, I'll feed you and you can live at my house, but I don't really know what to do with you. If the family's the first line of defense and they tried with the little one, but some little ones take more time. And so the, he was left to the lions and all of a sudden a bull elephant. By the way, I understand these are loner animals. They're not like the friendly ones that's like, oh, like, let me help you out. That's why they were wondering what's the bull elephant going to do to the little one? Because sometimes those those elephants attack the, the little tiny elephants. And out of nowhere, this elephant that's completely unrelated to that young one decides to face a pride of lions. It's not exactly a fair fight. I know he has like the ears going and the sounds and everything, but he was really outnumbered. And yet that life was saved, that one was spared, because one who didn't have to be invested, wasn't related, was not obligated to do something, stepped in and said, this one matters. And you know what? That is what God is inviting all of us to, charging all of us to, asking all of us to do with all of his young ones, to say, even if it's not my obligation, that because I belong to the family of God, I will not let the enemy snatch them away without a fight. I will stand in the gap. Do you understand that there is real spiritual warfare happening against these kids for their souls, for their eternity in their lives? It's real. I see it. I can see it with my eyes. My heart bleeds for it. I love these teens, but I'm leaving in three weeks. And they need to know that their church family, it's not just a few of us that love them, but their church family loves them and will not allow them to be snatched away. You see, even perfect parents, even when there's perfect parents, kids can still go astray. There comes a time when parents need partners, people who will love their kids when things are going badly, and a church family that will get down on their knees and pray, get down on their knees and pray against forces that we are not able to hold back with our understanding, reason, and logic, that when we talk about scripture and we teach them all that stuff, that stuff is not enough to hold the enemy at bay. More than half of our teens in our churches surveyed are disengaged from their faith. They know the information, but they are not equipped to fight. And we do not equip them by telling them stuff. We equip them when we say, come alongside me and live, live life with me. Let me tell you what I'm like, even if you'll judge, even if you'll disrespect, even if you won't like. Let me do that. Why? Because God has called us to do that. You see, so many times... Teens are looked at as, oh, well, they're not contributing. Like, what are they doing of value? But isn't it incredible that God chose us before we were anything? That while we were still sinners, God chose us. 
when we had nothing to give, when all we had was for Jesus to come and give his life, that God chose us. And you see, when we choose others, especially those who have nothing to give back to us, and it's true, it's not easy. They're not all going to be nice to you. They're not just going to be grateful and appreciative and everything's going to be great. That's not the promise. But the promise is that if we're willing to do that, God is going to be there. God is going to help. And we're going to see his power and, and the fruit of those seeds someday. It's a promise and a, a decision of obedience to God. And that is what God invites us to today. It's interesting Dr. Elmore makes uh, three observations I'd like to share with you. He says that this generation wants to belong before they believe. That if they don't feel like they belong or they're accepted in love, they're not open to embracing an idea. They have to be embraced first. That they want an experience before they want an explanation. They don't want to just hear it. They want to know what it means and what it looks like. And that means, friends, if we want to, to teach them how to pray faith-filled prayers, they have to hear us praying it. It doesn't matter how many times they come to church. If at home, it's all criticism, gossip, and negativity. And then people look at them and like, oh, where did they get that? Well, some of it is just from them. Some of it is from media. But many times we live what is modeled to us. And it matters. Faith is caught more than it is taught. So experience it, live it. And the third observation is that, it's funny how he says it, they want a guide on the side before they want a sage on the stage. Which means that they want relationship more than information, even if they know they need it. They'd rather have the relationship than know the stuff, even if they know they need to know the stuff. It's a deep desire and a deep need for this generation. And so what Paul ends up saying in 1 Corinthians, he says something that none of us want to say. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He says, don't just, you know, listen to what I say. Do as I say, not as I do. He says, I'm so committed to loving you that I'm willing to sacrifice in my life. I'm willing to make changes, even things that are uncomfortable, in order to follow the example of Christ. One of the top youth ministries researchers suggests that if you want your kids to believe that faith makes a difference, then take a step of faith. She suggests give 20% of your income, let them know, let them know why, and let them, and challenge them to do the same. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be going on a mission trip. It can be living out an act of forgiveness in a broken extended family. For me, one thing that I knew made such a life difference for me was just watching how my parents lived their lives. They didn't nag me all the time to read my Bible. I would just wake up in the morning and see it. They didn't say like, oh, did you pray today? I, I watched them pray together. And those are the moments that imprint on you. This matters. This makes a difference. I saw them grow and change. They're not the same people now as they were 10 years ago because of the grace of God. When you see that in your family, you can't deny it. But if you never see that kind of stuff, it's like, oh, well, that's just a lot of talk. It doesn't really make a difference. That is why an entire generation of young adults has been siphoned away from the church, because there's nothing real to believe in and belong to. And so the invitation, even if you don't have kids, is to live it. Live it so other people can see it. And is it easy? No. Is it painful? Yes. Does it make a difference? Absolutely. And so God invites us today to run to the battle, not away from it. To run toward it, even if we don't know what's going to happen. To run toward it, even if it might be costly and painful, even if we might be rejected and humiliated, because it can happen. God says to run toward the battle, knowing that we're overcomers in Christ, and that what is sown to the Spirit will be reaped in the Spirit. 
I've been so blessed these three years to be here in a church that loves its kids, that supports its teens, lets them come up on stage to preach. You know, when I preached here for the first time, it was only my second morning church sermon. I'd preach other places and evenings and stuff, but the churches I grew up in were so big that they would never put a kid up here. It's amazing to see the love and support this church has. But as the band comes forward, my challenge to you is to go from just support to mentorship, to go from applause and affirmation to a sacrificial relationship, if that was, is what God has called you to. And if nothing else, to get down on your knees and battle, battle for your kids, battle for our teens, and love them the way that Christ has loved us. Because that is the thing, not our jobs, not our money, that is the thing that will last for eternity.